0: Mr. Crowd, you think I have to work tonight too? After all, I'm a child. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's December 1919, and Tim Brayton joins us to discuss The Doll. Come visit ernstcast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say Hi. So, we are here again with Tim Brayton to talk about that movie that everyone's waiting for, that German film released in the winter of 1919-20, that expressionist triumph that changed German cinema forever. It's a movie about a master and his creation, a dreamscape of the Weimar psyche. I'm, of course, talking about Ernst Lubitsch's The Doll and not Robert Vina's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I have been... Really looking forward to this one. What did you think of the doll? I don't want to bury the lead. So I
1: want to start by saying I'm glad that you introduced it in the context of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I knew prior to seeing the film that this was sort of the one people talked about. When the Lubitsch and Berlin stuff gets talked about, like when those DVDs came out a decade ago, like the doll was the film people talked about. I've always had the impression this is the one people care about, but I really didn't know what it was until I watched it to talk to you about it. And it blew my mind how much... DNA, like how much of a family resemblance this does in fact have with Caligari and with a sort of expressionism at large, wasn't prepared for that, was delighted to find that was the case. I had a blast with this film. It was as good as any film I've seen in months and months, genuinely.
0: I'm so happy to hear that. It's a good bit of confirming my priors in that I watched it and I went, is this kind of a masterpiece?
1: I think it's kind of a masterpiece. Yeah. I will say if I can bring in sort of meta texts, so to speak, or paratexts. Yes. On your letterboxd review of this film, you called it handily your favorite of the Berlin-era Lubitsch films. And I read this directly after I saw The Oyster Princess for the first time as well, which was a great double feature, FYI. If you ever want to just make your entire life better, those two films, though short, doing them in one session, was the best thing I've done in a year. I read this review immediately after seeing The Oyster Princess, and I was like, handily, that can't possibly be true. (laughs) And it is.
0: It it is. I also, I mean, just because of the podcast, I recently rewatched The Oyster Princess, and I legitimately had that thought of, is this better than the doll? oh no, but the doll is fully unique. There's nothing that's ever been like it before or since. You see that first shot of the sun, and I actually just watched for the first time this January, um, the Melia's uh, Impossible Voyage. Uh. <laughs> and uh, immediately I thought of the sun in that, and I thought, oh, oh boy, we are in for something, because it is incredible to watch a deliberately lo-fi movie from 1919.
1: It is very much... Sort of in the tradition of like stage magic or pantomime or just sort of very pointedly crude. And I think that's sort of the caligari of it to an extent. Every set looks like painted flats. The background does not recede into the distance. It runs up to the wall and then there's a painting and you can tell it's a painting. There's no depth to it. So it is very crude, very lo-fi, as you say. And I think that is... So crucial to this film's charm and to how it's working. And I would not trade any of that, including, as you say, that very Melies-esque son.
0: It's almost like in 1905 was The Impossible Voyage, or was it... In that vicinity, 05, 04, there's so many Melias films, I can't remember the dates. I'm going to be deliberately general then. Um, 1900s, A Possible Voyage, where you have the most ornate son you've ever seen. And then this, where it is a child drawing. <laughs> All right. I mean, we should mention the film starts with Ernst Lubitsch himself walking onto the stage and setting up a dollhouse that we then cut into.
1: Is there in the 130 odd years of this medium, is there a more perfect metaphor for what it is to make and watch a movie and the director pulling out his toys and showing them to us. It's like, oh my God, this is Lubitsch. Like he's making his dollhouses
0: and he's putting his dollies in them and he's walking them around. That's cinema in a nutshell. What he does within that though, I find so interesting because one wouldn't necessarily think that this film, which is set in this artificial masquerade of a world is about something that is within that world artificial. You have this line between what is a doll in the film, which is, you know, a robot built by Professor Hilarious, and these quote-unquote humans, when in fact we're watching nothing but dolls. So we're getting this interesting distinction without a difference there that I thought was both in keeping with, especially his work with Aussie. I mean, you have Ossie Oswalda once again masquerading as something she's not within this world of artifice
1: no absolutely there's layers it's as you say this kind of story about automata and artifice in which respect i think it's probably worth pointing out it is not adapted from the short story the sandman by eta hoffman but it is adapted from an opera that is adapted from a play that is adapted from the sandman <laughs> if i understand that the line of descent correctly there is hoffman in this dna i haven't read too much of hoffman directly but i've seen a lot of stage work adapted from the short stories i've seen the nutcracker who hasn't certainly that love of sort of The uncanny and artifice and automata and sort of constructed reality and constructed beings, that's so central to so much of his work. And I feel like that's front and center in this film in a way that rarely to never seen done quite so effectively.
0: It's interesting, too, to compare this to the previous two films, because obviously the Oyster Princess is a very ready point of comparison where both take place in this very, very studio bound. Oyster Princess has, I think, two exterior scenes. Were you able to figure out where that movie's set? Because I, for the life of me, could not figure out what continent it was set on. I feel
1: reasonably confident that it can't be set in North America because then it can't be a plot point that they are American. Yeah. I don't know. This, This is a short answer to your question.
0: That's the thing where they're American, but it's almost impossible. I mean, the exteriors are very, very clearly shot in Berlin. But other than that, I, it's there was a lively debate in our household, I'll say, about where it was. And, and then you have Madame Duberry, which is, of course, set in pre revolutionary and then very briefly revolutionary France. That film, though, is this kind of fantasia, I think, as Scott Amon calls it, that doesn't really bear much resemblance to any kind of Paris that ever existed. But it's still this, you know, grand historical epic. And then that sandwich in between these two utterly, in quotes, frivolous bits of comic artifice. There is a line between them, but it almost feels like he's going out of his way to do everything. You know, I mean, I think he's much better at this thing than the other thing at this point. One of these things is not like the others in terms of how much I personally enjoyed them.
1: It's also very telling, you know, at this point in his career, Lubitsch is really focused on sort of moving back and forth between these broad farcical comedies with, you know, sort of a very sexual kick. And then these big, elaborate, long, costly, prestigious period dramas which I know were certainly very well-received. And as I believe you've talked about on the first episode, Madame Duberry was sort of the film that was his international breakout. I think it's very telling that when we think of Lubitsch in terms of his sound era Hollywood films, there is not a prestigious costume drama in the mix. They are all frothy, fizzy, very naughty comedies set in these kind of vaguely European, but generally just extremely artificial worlds. And I think that he figured out that that was his strength. He maybe didn't figure it out quite as swiftly as we want him to have done.
0: It's interesting, too, though, that the contemporaneous reactions were from all the sources I've read. Madame Dewberry was his big critical success at the time. It was well-received virtually everywhere it played. And then the doll seems to have kind of fallen beneath the cracks and wasn't even released in America until 28, and apparently only briefly then. And so you have him getting like a massively disproportionate amount of attention for the films that Circa now have kind of fallen by the wayside. It's one of those interesting tricks of history i wonder if it also plays into the fact that like you mentioned that he doesn't really continue with the historical epic side and absolutely true but i would think there's also an argument to say that this oyster princess and the later wildcat which you're gonna love are also kind of a road not taken because i mentioned this to jose in our carmen episode it's almost like this is the other side of german expressionism that Uh never fully kind of realized itself outside of these three films where Lubitsch is making you know expressionist birthday cakes yeah, right. That's,
1: that's such a great phrase. Expressionist birthday cake. I'm going to steal that. And no, and certainly, you know, I think this film is a masterpiece. I think it is maybe not perfect. I think there are some pacing issues, perhaps. It's such a sublimely crafted thing, but it does not feel really like later Lubitsch films. I mean, the Oyster Princess, there are affinities, like there are certain ways that it talks about sex and certain ways that it sort of looks at like these upscale interiors that do feel at least like there's a sort of like a line of descent that you can maybe trace out and it gets buried and it mm-hmm. gets manipulated but that is not the case with this film this case does not resemble anything I think that Lubitsch made later on even just generically like this is a fantasy film and as far as I'm aware he made no others after this
0: you could call the wildcat that but even that is still like grounded in like a I mean it's a very fantastical but it's still like a middle European kingdom it's kind of of a lineage with Oyster Princess and the Merry Widow in that way sure You know, it's it also has a formal experimentation of this film, which I mean, there's so much there.
1: I do wonder, you know, if we can sort of look at, well, why wasn't this film the big critical success? Why wasn't this the film that was his like entree into Hollywood? And, you know, part of that, I wonder if it's just the same story that has always been true of film critics since film criticism began as a discipline in the teens. If it's funny, it's not art. It's also
0: really weird.
1: (laughs) It's also super weird.
0: My notes for this film, like my notes for every other film so far in this podcast are like bullet points of like, mention this, mention this. My notes are this are like 34, 15, the horses. The horses.
1: <laughs>
0: I was eating an
1: apple while I was watching this movie and I started laughing so hard at the horses that I started, like I sucked in apple and started choking on it. I almost choked to death laughing at the doll, which is I think the best review I can possibly give of it or any film.
0: I think there were two moments in this film that I had that reaction to. One is the horses and the other is the greatest business card ever, which is
1: available for
0: bachelors, widows, and misogynists used to describe the titular doll in the film,
1: which is... (laughs) I loved that because it really, I thought, brought into focus, you know, there's this term that gets used constantly in cultural criticism right now, toxic masculinity. And to hear people talk about it, you'd think that we had no art produced before 2014, That's willing to like make fun of this kind of awful version of male behavior. And here we have this phenomenal joke at the expense of it in a film from Germany in 1919. The more things change, the more they stay the same.
0: I'm trying to get away from, like, any plot summaries, but I think a concrete description of what this film even is, is warranted at this point, because this is a film about a young man who is terrified of women, and, like, truly terrified of anyone who's not, like, a safe, you know, straight man. Gosh, there's so many twists and turns here. He's taken in by a group of monks.
1: (laughs) The monk sequence was delightful.
0: We could talk about this film's very interesting relationship with Catholicism. He is then referred by the monks to, essentially, the 1919 version of someone who makes real dolls, and... Is given one of these dolls, but it's not actually a doll. It is the inventor's daughter pretending to be a doll, and hijinks ensue.
1: The inventor does not know this. She and the inventor's adorable little apprentice, who who I think is easy to overlook, but I really like that young oh, I've performance.
0: Many notes about him. He's the proto peppy
1: Yes, <laughs> they broke the doll, so she has to pretend to be the doll, which led to one of my absolute favorite jokes in the the film when the young man who needs to. So it's a sort of seven chances type situation where he needs to get married right now or he's going to lose his inheritance and so he's going to trick his uh his benefactor by marrying a, a robot girl so he doesn't have to get involved with a woman so he goes to buy this doll and the inventor the young man is like i'll take her right now and the inventor is sort of like oh well that's unorthodox and is clearly not happy but was well, he walda has this great huge face pull reaction where she like freaks out and like runs into the back of the set and then runs back really quickly and it's that was another move that I left pretty hard. Fortunately, no apple in my mouth.
0: It's going to be tough to make this episode like not just a, like a, a, a litany of our greatest of hits because there are so many good ones. I mean, we touched upon the horses. So the horses are clearly played by groups of two people yep. <laughs> in, the, in the, the flimsiest horse kind of suit you've ever seen in your life. like The way they kneel is one of the funniest things I've ever uh-huh. seen on the screen. And then there's the punchline of them where the carriage master literally asks the horses why they're not going anywhere. And the horses respond, which is... This is incredible. Anyways, oh God, where do we even start with this? We could start with like the proto Benny Hill sequence. You
1: know, I, I mentioned Seven Chances. I, you've already sort of mentioned this film did not screen in the United States until 28 and that's that. But it feels like this had to have been an influence on that in some capacity because it, it is doing that same thing where the main character is being like chased by just this wave of women through this town, this very fake looking little Bavarian-ish town really wonderful surreal moment even in this film that is sort of built on surrealism and built on you know this kind of extreme artificiality the just like randomness of all of a sudden there's this room full of women and they're just like chasing after him in this serpentine path is just a striking image hey
0: I mean, it feels so in line with his, up to this point, almost every movie has this now in this period of blobs of men and women acting mm-hmm. as one entity. Um, you, you see that here in the, with the monks. You see that here with the women chasing our lead character around town. Here, I think it's special because it's situated in this, in the perfect environment for that sort of thing, this uh-huh. artificial place.
1: And almost have a sort of Scooby-Doo vibe in terms of like, they run off camera one direction and they come on from another direction and it's tremendous sequence.
0: I didn't even think of that. I uh, My three reference points were Hard Day's Night, Benny Hill, Austin Powers. <laughs> I think all three of those are referencing probably the same thing, which is Benny Hill, I guess.
1: There's the thing it's doing, and it's slapsticky, and it's wonderful, and it's weird. And as you say, it is sort of, there's precedent for it. I mean, certainly the kind of blobby lines of people dancing the foxtrot and the oyster princess, I think, feels like a very obvious forerunner to this joke.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Then you got the, the, again, this is unearned hindsight, but in Wildcat later, we're going to see that times a thousand. Literally like scenes where hundreds of women mob our main character in that movie.
1: You're getting (laughs) me unreasonably excited to watch
0: the Wildcat. Good. The good stuff is so good. I want to talk about Pepe because Pepe is such a fascinating little figure because he almost feels like both the descendant of someone like Sally Pincus. Uh. Massively ambitious, womanizing young man, and in this case, very young man, who will just do what it takes to get ahead. He's also Peppy from Shop Around the Corner. He's this apprentice who cannot wait to usurp the throne. Exactly. And, I mean, his dialogue, just the old chestnut of putting clearly a dialogue written from the point of view of an older person inside this kid pays off so well. Uh Mm-hmm. What is it? You are now hearing the confessions of a broken man, like sentences like that.
1: That was phenomenal. I will say, not to sideline us, this has got to be one of the earliest examples I've seen of a silent film with like dialogue that we could talk about as being like Mm -hmm. funny one-liners, which is obviously not something for apparent reasons. This is not something that happens too often in silent cinema, but uh, it does feel like there's such verbal wit going on in these title cards. And I don't know that I have an observation about that, just that it seems important because certainly one of the things that we will look forward to in Lubitsch when the sound period arrives is just the incredible play of language and the just dexterity of the dialogue in those films. And it is wonderful to see that he's starting it. I wouldn't even say as soon as it's possible. I'd say before it's possible to do that kind of thing.
0: You can start to see, like, the elements of the famous kind of Lubitsch dialogue touch. You know, in this case, Lubitsch touch applied to dialogue in both this and the Oyster Princess, right? Oyster Princess has, I think, the first kind of running catchphrase gag Uh that he uses. You know, now that impresses me or I'm not impressed. And that would later become a staple of his sound films, you know, like Schultz. And in this, you have this kind of just brilliantly witty dialogue for the first time in any of his films. Just to kind of wrap off the peppy note, too. The scene where he is so despondent over breaking the doll that he tries to, like, the implication that he's going to try and, you know, kill himself by drinking paint, I think. Yes. <laughs> that too feels like, I mean, Luvich would later treat suicide with a bit more of a light and kind of somber touch later on. But that kind of deeply silly gag laced with darkness also feels like a step forward for him where it's one and the same.
1: I mean, it's all one thing, obviously, like that's part of why he's a brilliant filmmaker is like none of these things can be just untangled from from the whole network. I think part of what makes it funny is that it's this child. And I mean, I would not be able to pin down exactly how old he is, but 13, 14, 15 feels like a good guess somewhere in that. Maybe I don't know. I think there's something to seeing this child, this sort of early adolescent kind of play acting at these big adult emotions like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's so melodramatic. He's going to kill himself, align you. You pointed out, you now see it before you a broken man. I think there's just something inherently ridiculous about it. That's both precocious, but also sort of incongruous. i to have that kind of mishmash of adult sensibilities with someone who's very clearly not an adult. Which I don't think is something Lubitsch would really play with going forward, but I do think it's part of why the paint drinking joke. The script
0: part of what I think makes it land is that the script doesn't make too fine a point of the fact that he is like clearly a child. He could easily be played by an eighteen year old with the same dialogue, and it's just that the jokes wouldn't necessarily be as funny. But it does play into this kind of Lubitsch thing of the person with pretensions of being something. You can be that thing in a Lubitsch movie. It just takes skill. It's not a matter of being born into this or having that as part of your DNA, or in this case, being old enough to be the thing you're. Pertain to be, that kid is the thing he's pretending to be because he wills it into being, which is what Lubitsch protagonists have continued to do for the next 30 years after this, yeah.
1: I think it's interesting to tie that in with the basic hook of this movie is that we are watching the goings-on inside a toy box. Mm-hmm. So there's the sense in which like things are their surface. Things are the sort of artifice about them, which I think is true of of that in a way. He's saying he's this thing. That's what he's playing. And by the logic of child's playtime, by the logic of working with dolls, you declare I am now an adult or whatever you declare. I am am now this thing. And that's the rule now. And we're going to continue playing using that as the rule. That's just how it works.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and then Aussie once again, playing a character with the same name as the actress, which makes it very easy to (laughs) talk about her. On a little complete tangential note, I've tried to look up exactly why she almost exclusively plays characters named after herself. And I've come up totally blank on it. I'm so curious as to where that originated. I
1: feel like that's got to be somewhere in the same reason that we would always tend to refer to Buster Keaton's characters as Buster. Yeah. That's just who she is. We're going to talk about her that way anyway. So why not just make it formal?
0: (laughs) In Aussie's case, she becomes a, in this case, a real wife by playing a fake one. Which, I mean, you got that double irony there, too, right? Of you have, she's playing a doll. However, the man who, quote unquote, bought her or thought he bought a doll is pertaining to everyone else that this doll he just bought is a real human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she is, for great chunks in the movie, playing a doll, playing a human. Or she's actually playing a doll who is a human in this diegesis, playing a doll, playing a human.
1: Yeah, she's playing a doll, playing a human, playing a doll, playing a human. Exactly. (laughs) I think it's the number of of incarnations. That actually does get me to something I was sort of briefly, briefly alluded to earlier. There's this wonderful moment where it's when he's like showing her off and having her like do her dance. And all of the assembled like quote unquote real people watching like sort of bob their heads and applaud. But they're doing that in such a rhythmic, controlled, mechanical way. Which sort of, I think, ties back to we are, in a sense, like if we think about the narrative in a literal way, we are watching dolls. Like the whole movie is being acted by dolls. But I think it also does get to the sense of like, how does someone think that he is selling the world? Like, here's my robot. Like, you know, here's my (laughs) wife, but she's a robot. When the world in which she inhabits is already so robotic and so doll-like and so like, controlled by these sort of very rigid movements and very rigid social codes, So, like, it's as much a satire on a culture that would believe that a doll is a woman as the satire of a culture where a woman can pretend to be a doll. Again, it's all one thing.
0: And to further that, Lubitsch sets himself up for that by creating a world that can enable this story to happen. Imagine this exact story in the universe of, I don't know, Madame or a movie ostensibly set in our reality-ish it would probably fall apart immediately because you'd get into the weeds of just how is a robot so realistic you get into the metropolis thing it's now a sci-fi movie
1: to go for the the very low-hanging fruit i mean look at something like uh lars and the real girl which is sort of the indie tragic comedy version of this story in a way and like the character is immediately found out and regarded as a kind of sad figure of pathos because he's got the sex doll as he's declaring as his his partner now in the doll There are so many layers of artifice and reality and they're just kind of all piling on top of each other that it just no longer makes sense to talk about it in that way. So it becomes much easier to buy in that like people will believe whatever they need to believe in order to make the next part of the plot happen because there is such a kind of intertwined artifice reality toy human world.
0: Your suspension of disbelief is already way over there in the corner. Exactly. It actually kind of reminds me of a much subtler version of this, not subtle, but subtler, that he would employ in films like To Be or Not To Be and, to a lesser extent, *Chop Around the Corner, where he would get over the complete unbelievability of the language barriers by just casting American actors and going, yeah, these are Americans, essentially, deal with it. (laughs) How can Joseph Tura in To Be or Not To Be speak in perfect German? So perfect that he can pass as German to Germans, even though he is Polish. The doll feels like ground zero a bit for keying into that artifice. If we just drown it in so much clear artifice, then the audience won't care.
1: That's a really good observation. I think that's exactly correct. I mean, that to a certain extent is what's pleasurable about many 20s and 30s movies. But certainly I think Lubitsch in particular is we see the construct, like we see that it is artificial we see that it is very heavily written and very like poignantly acted something that I've been thinking about as I've been watching these Osias Welda films is the work he would later do with Maurice Chevalier who just constantly breaks character insofar as he ever <laughs> even constructs the character to begin with looks at the camera winks at the yeah. camera talks to us directly like he's engaging us as much as he's engaging the other characters and there is that sense I think of like Creating a sense that what we're watching is not cinema, that we're watching is some sort of window into a reality, which is the heart and soul of continuity filmmaking. Like, that's what it's for. It's there to sort of create the sense that we're watching an uninterrupted reality. Lubitsch is just saying, nope, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to enjoy the artifice. I'm here to enjoy the fakeness of it. I'm here to enjoy Mm -hmm. the sort of trickery that I'm imposing to make you believe that the story is plausible. when we all know that, of course, it's not. That's maybe not something that starts here, but I think it's certainly something that intensifies here.
0: I mean, you can see it in kind of the deliberate vagueness of where some of these movies are set. Absolutely, it's kind of Berlin. A lot of it's Berlin, but not really. And so this is just—it's well, really not anything.
1: It's sort of Berlin in the same way that a bunch of early Hollywood movies are sort of Los Angeles, because like mm-hmm. there's palm trees, but at the same time, it's like a small town in Iowa that also happens to be suburban LA.
0: And also happens to have palm trees. Exactly. <laughs> this brings me to maybe the one part of the film that feels a little anchored in kind of real world concerns, which is the monks and especially the way that the film is lightly satirical of them. So there's a group of monks in this movie who, you know, you could call them lovable misers. They're generous, but to a point where you have that great scene where the monk is eating the largest chunk of meat you've ever seen. And he notices that the visitor next to him is hungry. So he slices the thinnest piece of bread
1: ever. Yes.
0: <laughs> he gives it to him. But yeah, so the monks, Lubitsch, the world's foremost Catholic satirist, um, <laughs> is brutal satire of these monks who eat meager rations. What did you make of that?
1: I mean, it is definitely unexpected to see show up, as you point out, the presence of a like real world religion in a Lubitsch film already feels kind of oddly strange to me. Like some of the earlier films, like characters are very specifically Jewish and that sort of feels more like a cultural thing to me in a way, but this is like very clearly satirizing the Catholic church in a way that I don't think has precedent in Lubitsch and I certainly don't see it show up anywhere else. It's unexpected in part because I think I don't really associate like that sort of cynical bite that is necessary for satire with this comedy, except for maybe the scripts that he's working with Kelly Wilde, who does have that kind of level of cynicism in it. It's shocking to see it first. That being said, I do think it works. Like it landed mm-hmm. for me. The joke you talked about, I think was sticky and obvious, but I think it landed. There's another one where it's literally the joke is that the camera iris is out to show instead of one monk chomping on this giant piece of food, we have like two monks on either side of him. And it's like when you see it, it feels like sort of inevitable. It sort of feels like, you know, there's a lot lot noise going on for some of these jokes, but they're still working. And I don't almost know how i can explain why they don't feel broader and more cliched than they are and again maybe it's just that the artifice of the the world is so complete that like i'm primed to accept just any number of like broad dad jokey type humor
0: it's interesting to me because i think part of why it works for me is that the film lets the implications of it just lie there You know, it feels like like Lubitsch kind of letting you just finish his sentences for him, where it's, these monks are all vaguely lecherous, but they never fulfill their lecherousness. They're not very vaguely greedy, but they're greedy in ways that are kind of, if not benign, just kind of adorable. They just like, they love their food. And the film lets them off the hook. They never become an impediment to our two main characters' romance. There's no moment where they have to escape the monks or whatever. They're like the seven dwarves or something. They're just there to be funny. As a leg of the story that we pass through.
1: And I think there's something to what you said earlier about sort of the implication and letting us get of read into things. There's a quote either about Lubitsch or by Lubitsch, and it's well known, and you might very well have talked about it already in one of these episodes. But basically, the idea is any filmmaker can give the audience two plus two equals four if you give them two plus two equals They're going to think you're a genius and they're going to love you for letting (laughs) them do the math. And I feel like that's part of why the satire maybe feels better here is that it's not an anti-Catholic screed. It's not a film about the corruption of the church. He's just sort of like putting it out there. We can pick it up. We don't have to, but we can certainly see it. We can laugh at it. And then we can move back to the matter at hand, which is this kind of very strange sci-fi fantasy romance situation. So maybe that is why his satire does feel so hands-off and so effective is that he's not trying to bash us with it. He's not trying to be like, this is what I'm doing to get it, to get it.
0: It also doesn't feel like, I mean, I don't think it's wrong for a film to have an agenda, but it just feels very without an agenda.
1: Agreed, completely.
0: I think it's also worth noting that when asked to name it the favorite film he made as of 1921, he referenced this film. So as of two years later, this was the film he was most proud of, which I think is very telling.
1: That's very, very telling, yeah.
0: Um, non sequitur. One thing I truly struggled with, this is the only element of my viewing of the film that I struggled with, was the score on the Eureka disc. The first time Anya and I watched it, about 10 minutes in, we're like, we can't handle the score. We just put on like a Mozart, I think it was like Mozart Symphony 38 or something, one of the fun ones. And we just let it go and it just that just happened to work better and just to be completely... To leave no stone unturned, I watched it this time with the score that Eureka put on there. And I was shocked at how much it stepped on the jokes.
1: (laughs) It steps on the jokes for sure. It also does this thing that is like the prime sin that a silent film score can do. It leaves lots of empty spaces. Mm -hmm. Like it keeps stopping. And it's like, you're not stopping to make room for an emotion or a joke. You're just like, okay, let's take 30 seconds.
0: need a drink of water. And
1: now we're (laughs) back. And that's... It does not feel like the music has been designed to accentuate the movie in any way which i think is a dramatic contrast to the score that eureka put on oyster princess where like that score
0: is, i love
1: the foxtrot scene is one of the most perfect sequences of like contemporary music being stitched into you know silent Lou that i think i've ever seen because it's really underlining and drawing attention to the jokes here as you say it's either stepping on the jokes or it's just ignoring that they exist at all and it's kind of doing its own thing rhythmically this is just it's terrible
0: It's, I was kind of shocked and I get the primitivism of it. I mean, yes, on paper, you got a primitivist movie, you put a primitivist score on it, but this is just like, I mean, it's a solo, I think it's a pump organ. Anyways, it's, I was kind of shocked because all the other scores on the Eureka set, which is the best place to find almost all of the films we're talking about. They're all fine to great. Like Oyster Princess is, I think my favorite, but the separate Eureka score for Madame Dewberry, all the other shorts and such are, they work fine. This one is such an odd duck.
1: (laughs) It would hardly be like the worst silent film score I think I've ever heard. I did watch the movie with the score. I loved the movie with the score. So it's not like the score ruined the movie for me in a way that my go-to example is always...
0: This is the Visions of Light score for...
1: Oh, no, not that. My other go-to example, the old Kino scores for the Buster Keaton shorts and features. The especially one week had this just god-awful electronic keyboard like dun, dun, dun. i have never been able to watch the film from start to finish that's like a 12-minute film that's not like a lot of movie i find this score so intrusive that it just actually ruins it for me i don't think this is that bad but it's in the bottom tier mm-hmm. of silent film scores i've encountered
0: my general dividing line between whether I think a score on silent film release is worthwhile is would I be better served watching the film alongside a fully arbitrary piece of music not composed for it and this score failed that test um and so sorry the composer for the score I'm not going to name them online or whatever if the composer for the score is listening to this I I, I genuinely apologize I (laughs) at least
1: yes we apologize but at the same time You had one job.
0: (laughs) You had one job, which is to do the doll justice. Yes. Um, Yeah. Anyways, there are so many ways that silent film presentation on home video can be fraught. I feel bad for like, you know, beggars can't be chooses and we're all beggars in the desert of what's available.
1: Yeah. And I will say, generally speaking, the Eureka restoration was fantastic, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, it's incredible that we can watch this film. that's over 100 years old and it feels certainly not like it was made yesterday. But you would not say this was old when my grandmother was born. Like, you wouldn't say that if the way this, this print looks. But there was a moment I'm pretty sure was step printed. And it's when the young apprentice is like, leaning over to pick something up and like he just suddenly like goes slow motion and starts juddering Mm -hmm. and it might very well have just been the specific copy it might not be the restoration i don't know but like we talked about this with the eyes of Mummy ma i remember you always do have to watch silent films sort of you are reconstructing in your mind the experience of watching them to a certain extent because they are not meant to be seen the way we're watching And that's both true for the quality of the print, that's true for the circumstances we're watching them under. So there's always a degree of which we are interpreting these movies in a way that is not true of something that's even 20 years younger.
0: You can see it in our reactions between this and Mommy Ma, which I I think you have the dubious honor of having seen probably the worst film so far and possibly the best. But Mommy Ma, I think, I do wonder if, I mean, I know that a better version of that film can probably exist. If we had seen like the optimal 4k scan of the best source materials of that film would we feel so nonplussed by it i really wonder
1: that's something i frequently ask myself about some of these very old films because i have seen movies where just a better transfer like suddenly made me reevaluate a film my kind of most saline example of that which is not silent film at all so it's kind of beside the point the first time i ever watched disney's bambi on blu-ray I suddenly, like 10 minutes into it, realized I was watching one of my new favorite Disney films. And I'd seen the film two dozen times. This happened in like 2013 or 2014. I watched this Blu-ray for the first time. So Bambi was not a new film to me, but like the colors suddenly meant something emotionally and narratively they never had before because there was just better color reproduction. And like that does matter. And I think we try to talk about it like we're just watching the movie and we're judging the movie, but circumstances do matter. Score does matter, like. Am I maybe giving the doll phantom points over Oyster Princess having had a considerably better musical experience? I mean, maybe I am. I don't know it. It's difficult to say. It's useful to be reflective about that as viewers of so well,
0: there's only one thing to do, and that's drag Carl Davis out of retirement and get him to compose the score.
1: Or apparently just to listen to Mozart's thirty-eighth while I'm watching the doll for the next time.
0: It's a perfectly cromulent experience. Now
1: now part of me wants to like find all these frothy Berlin like sex farces and just watch them with like Mahler playing. <laughs>
0: Oh, boy. I mean, I probably could have chosen more applicable. like, I could have done a, but I, I tried to pick like, I'm, I just listened to the first five seconds of like three Mozart symphonies. And I'm like, this one sounds fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I'm curious about, and again, this is completely like not on my agenda, but as far as 1919 in cinema goes, I think the doll like rocketed up to the top of my list. And for me, it's either that or Jacques. I'm curious, 1919 in cinema, are there any films that you're like, okay, where's the doll sit now?
1: I will say first, I have not seen Jacques. That is a lapse for me. I am going to need to insert a pause into our (laughs) proceedings.
0: I figured we might because I'm just so curious. Give me a second. It's such an obscure question that I'm like, I have to ask this.
1: Fortunately, I do have a spreadsheet. As I said, (laughs) I have my alphabetical spreadsheet. I also have my chronological spreadsheet. Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) All I have is my memory because I've never gone back to put stuff I know I've seen on Letterboxd.
1: So 1919, Whomst Among Us has seen hundreds of movies from any given year in the 1910s. There are probably scholars out there. Tom Gunning has probably seen like 400 films from 1919. You know, I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of movies from that year, obviously, the kind of... The canonical, this is the movie that people see is uh, Broken Blossoms, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting and fascinating, but I don't like put it on because I want to see it. It's not like I'm in the mood for a picture. I'm going to watch me some D.W. Griffith racism. <laughs> and I think 1919 is also kind of conspicuous. Like for most years, my like easy answer is like, well, what did Chaplin make that year? And that year Chaplin made arguably two of his worst films, uh, Sunnyside and A Day's Pleasure. So I think I'm going to have to side with you there. I think I'm going to have to say that, yeah, the doll's probably my number one. At this point of the year.
0: Jacques, Hughes, I mean, you're talking to someone who is massively biased towards all things Gantz. Uh, I mean, I'm probably overrating Jacques, Hughes, but it's that movie.
1: No, I mean, I have at this point a uniformly positive experience with the Gantz that I've seen. So I am willing to believe you.
0: You kind of just got to watch the three silent films and then you're kind of done with them. He did kind of suffer a, I think, probably one of the worst burnouts of any filmmaker ever after Napoleon for reasons that should for be all too obvious. reasons, yes. <laughs> But yeah, no, it is incredible that it's just, I can't get over this road not taken for Lubitsch and not for just Lubitsch, but imagine if I think for other reasons that should be all too obvious, him leaving Berlin in 1923 was fortuitous to say the least but imagine if i mean imagine if the weimar republic had continued that would be amazing but imagine if he had stayed another you know the nine years he could have conceivably made movies there imagine how different german expressionism might look mm-hmm. in terms of how we look back on it if he had made like stuff like this in the wildcat at the height of that movement
1: yeah like it's easy to call this a road not taken for lubich because it certainly is this is also a road not taken right like again It feels like there's a moment in history when we have the doll and we have Caligari. They're both brand new. They're both, again... Clearly related. They are coming from the same place. I would love to know what was happening in Germany in like 1917, 1918, 1919 that leads two filmmakers telling two very different stories to adopt this kind of same flat backdrops, very angular lines, characters whose like very bodies. We haven't actually talked about this, but like character design, mm-hmm. which how do you even talk about character design in live action cinema? And yet I'm about to, like, the inventor has like this kind of triangular, like, tripod of hair just kind of shooting out of his head which is in turn used for some very fun stop motion jokes so you have caligari and the doll and caligari is what we end up doing right like we end Mm -hmm. up making films that are sort of in that spirit like using this style for expressionism for these very emotionally like sort of loud stories about people in these kind of intensified situations which is certainly not what doll is doing so like not only where did Lubitsch go from here, but where did German cinema go? Like, why are there no other expressionist sex comedies?
0: Well, there's one. There's Wildcat. wild cat. <laughs> there's Wildcat. wild cat. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. And, I mean, just even what you're saying about character design. I mean, compare Victor Janssen in this to Victor Janssen in The Oyster Princess. Two mm-hmm. completely distinct characters, neither of which resemble Victor Janssen as a person, visually.
1: I did not recognize it was the same actor until I was looking it up, to be honest. It's one thing to say, like, why did Lubitsch only make, you know, one or two or three? If we're going to say, you know, Oyster Princess, this and Wildcat are sort of a set. Like, that's three out of a career of many, many films, tens of films. And I think what's also is interesting to think about, like, how did Lubitsch's career develop into the American years, like into his silent period and Hollywood? He's still, like, playing around with this. Like, he's making melodramas. He's making comedies. He's making literary adaptations with them. We get to sound and basically everything from 29 through, like... 36, 37, there is a film that Lubitsch makes a couple exceptions. Like he made Broken Lullaby. He made Angel. He makes one kind of film. And basically the biggest question is, does it have music or not mm-hmm. this particular time? And I think it's fascinating that he landed on the thing he does best. I think like anyone's ever done it better. And I think it's, it's what I like to see him doing, but there is this huge amount of genre experimentation. I mean, as we've been talking about, you know, Oyster Princess and this were interrupted by Madame de Berry, which is, you know. Very different film, completely different set of priorities. And we don't see, for many filmmakers, but certainly not for Lubitsch post this period, that kind of just absolute freedom of moving from one mode to another, what genre to another, one just basic like set of filmmaking tools, like his visual vocabulary is changing. And maybe that's just at a certain point you get too old to keep up with that. And you just like start to rely on, well, I know I can do this and it will not break my brain if I try to come up with doing yet another Maurice Chevalier and Jeanette MacDonald bedroom farce. Like, at a certain point, you know you can do it, so let's do it.
0: It's interesting, too. He's always had one eye on the markets, right? Mm -hmm. So part of why he kept returning to historical melodramatic epic was that sold. And I'm curious as to what drove him to keep doing these comparatively niche I mean, these films were still clearly profitable but comparatively niche comedies. I also wonder, I mean, the difference between, you know, in this case, the UFA system and the Hollywood studio system might also account for some of this where Lubitsch was at this point the most celebrated filmmaker in Germany. He was, I mean, there's a couple of contemporaneous accounts that say yeah, he is the film industry here. So Maybe that gives you the freedom to just do whatever the hell you want because you don't have that ossified studio system in. They're still throwing stuff at the wall. And when you're the king of it, you're like, okay, crazy expressionist comedy in a dollhouse. Two months earlier, French revolutionary drama.
1: And I'm going to make sister sort a of random ass comparison here. You know, as you say, and I think it's important to keep in mind, like we always get this idea of like great film artists are sort of pure and above commerce. lubich is not. Lubitsch does, as you no. say, have one eye on the marketplace. I think it is always important to remember about Lubitsch. He, by the end of his career, was given the keys to Paramount, not because the high-level execs thought, oh, we want to make art, but because they knew that he was a good investment. He would protect the studio. He would make choices that would help sort of keep the studio solvent. But I do think, if my memory serves, based on the little bit I've read about her in the last couple of days, I believe Ossie Aswoldo was a fairly big star. Yes, Mm -hmm. she's money right so like he's making these Aussie as well the films because like he's good at them he likes making them but also he knows that there's a place for it so like big heaving expensive prestige movies make money but so do smaller star-driven films and what sort of weirdly leaps out to me and here's that strange comparison I'm thinking of toys the Barry Levinson film starring Robin Williams from 1992 or whatever year that came (laughs) out where we have this fairly safe character drama director like Barry Levinson makes you know that's what he does working with one of the big comic stars and they both decide that they're at a point where they want to just make this completely bonkers surrealist experiment that didn't hit to a certain extent doesn't work even now but like it was designed to be a big deal like that movie was meant to be a big box office event when it opened in the fall of 1992 I'm wondering if maybe the doll was like, they're just like, oh, well, the powers of Lubich and Oswalda together and they sort of got away from themselves and made it just a little bit too weird. But like, maybe it's not meant to be a niche Nitschko. Maybe it is meant to be like a big movie star hit.
0: It's also, I mean, I'd be curious to see the budget sheets because this film we did before this, which is Matt and is so expensive looking. Like it ends on one of the largest scale French Revolution reign of terror guillotine scenes I've ever seen in my life. It is truly epic. And this is, I mean, you got the scene with the Benny Hill with 40 women or so chasing him around. But that's about as big as this movie gets. And the sets are willfully rickety. Clearly, a lot of work has gone into them being beautifully rickety, but I would be shocked if this film cost half as much as Madame DuBerry. So I'm curious as to whether that played into the economics of it, whether this just was a cheaper idea, so why not do it? Or versus, let's make a smaller scale one, because you have a similar dynamic between Carmen and Meyer from Berlin, where in 1918, you have these films where you go from clearly very expensive epic, Carmen costs a lot of money, to a film where the largest scene has like six people. Good. A lot of it's just shot on location in Bavaria with Lubitsch just kind of flouncing about in the mountains. So you have all this. The comedies are cheaper, with the exception, again, of The Wildcat, which, boy, that costs a lot of money.
1: I feel like I have a couple pieces of speculation that immediately leap to mind. One is we're working in the industry at this point. It's not like film now where a director gets to carefully curate a film over years and then Take time to step back and wait for the next film to strike. This is their job. It's their nine to five job that says they have to keep working. Maybe there is, though, a degree of like, I just made Carmen. I just made Madame DuBerry. I'm tired. I do not want to do this work. I will do something that I know will play commercially that will only take a little bit out of me. And then part of me also wonders when you mention, I haven't seen the film you just named, but. When you said that it was like all these Bavarian locations, is that Lubitsch's version of an Adam Sandler, I'm in the mood for a Caribbean vacation. Let's set a rom-com in the Caribbean. We we literally
0: mentioned that while watching the movie. That was like, that's how it feels. It's so low stress. It might be the most frivolous of all the films so far, actually. I mean, to your point too, I mean, this is only counting surviving films. This is the fourth episode of this podcast about a film made in 1919. Yeah, <laughs> like literally, eyes of mommy ma. The last time we recorded it together was fourteen months before this release date. Wise, just absurd. Just pumping out movies every couple of months. I mean, it's shocking that they're this good, even the weak ones. Absolutely. Looking forward, I mean, the rest of his Berlin period is so offbeat because starting basically with The Oyster Princess, he's just bouncing so fast between these like massive comedies and just absurdly, like corpulently funded historical epics. So I think the next few episodes will be fun. So that's the doll. Watch this movie, everybody. It's stunning. It's great. It'll make you feel good.
1: This movie gets my absolute highest recommendation every now and then i'm watching a movie and at a certain point in it i'm just like oh i'm watching a new perfect movie i've had that experience three times i think in the last like eight years oh wow once was young girls of rochefort once was a page of madness the japanese silent horror film and once was this so like that's where i'm at with this is just like it was just imprinting itself on my brain as i was watching it
0: i'm incredibly gratified to have catalyzed you doing that sooner rather than later so that is so great to hear
1: thank you for having me thank you for letting me talk about it I thought this was a very special very unique movie
0: next week David Cairns joins us to discuss Cole Heisel's daughters Griffin Scheele was our dialogue editor for this episode head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes How Would Lupage Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.